Public protesting has long been celebrated as a way for the people to illustrate their displeasure about something that the governments may or may not be doing. But that is changing, just as the world is changing. I have some views about climate protesting, but first I would like you to listen to this piece from the Drum and ABC program from just last night where people talked about, or where the panel talked about, climate protesting. And then we'll get into some real conversation. Welcome. This is the latest episode of Climate Conversations. I'm your host, Robert McLean. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in Northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Now, before I go any further, I urge you to follow this podcast, because if you do that, you'll be alerted every time I publish a new episode. Let's listen now to that short piece from the drum, and after that, we'll talk about the rights and wrongs of protesting. In this case, protesting about issues to do with the climate. This panel session is from the Australian Broadcasting Commission, the ABC. Hello and welcome to The Drum. I'm Catherine Robinson. Coming up... Prime Ministers and Chief Executives targeted at home is all fair in the name of protest. Joining me on the panel, City of Sydney Councillor and Deputy Chairperson of Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council, Yvonne Weldon. Lovely of you to join me on the desk, Yvonne, and nice to see you. Thank you. In Alice Springs, CEO of the National Voice for Our Children, Snake, Catherine Little. Hi there, Catherine. Over in the West, coming from Perth, CEO of Advertising and Marketing Communications Business, the Brand Agency. Hi there, Steve. How are you going? Good to be here. Great to have you on the show. And in Melbourne, Managing Director of the Kunganji Aerospace, Daniel Joinby. Hi there, Daniel. G'day. Well, first tonight, protesters got very close to home for two leaders this week. Overnight, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's private country manor was scaled and wrapped in black by Greenpeace activists protesting offshore oil and gas drilling. We're all here because Rishi Sunak has opened the door to a new drilling frenzy in the North Sea, while large parts of our world are literally on fire. This will be... On Tuesday in Perth, Woodside CEO Meg O'Neill found a group of protesters outside her home campaigning against gas developments in the Pilbara. Four people have been charged, but activists say leaders of big fossil fuel emitters are fair game in the fight against climate change. Yvonne, do you agree? Are they fair game? Should protests like this occur, encroach on people's private lives, their homes, their families? Look, I think that protesting is an important part of raising issues, but I think that doing so in private spaces is quite threatening. Um, people have a right to be safe in their own homes, and but actually um, protesting on uh, someone's uh, you know, front lawn or in their private space, uh, it shouldn't be done. A step too far. Steve, do you think they've gone too far there? Uh, it, it's a disgrace and it's big news in Western Australia of course. Mm. Um, it's crossing a line that should not be crossed and from my view putting an advertising marketing lens on it, it's not a protest, it's content creation. They've gone out deliberately to try and create clickbait and they're using an individual's private home and private family for that purpose and it's just, it's wrong 
and it's dumb marketing as well. It's mm. not going to serve their cause any good whatsoever. I'm going to ask you about that from a marketing perspective in just a moment, but given um, that the residence is, uh, of Mega Nils is in Western Australia, I mean, what has the reaction from people there been? I was at a business breakfast this morning where Meg spoke and there was pretty much unanimous support. She took the stage um, to raucous applause and a huge amount of personal support. So I don't think there's a lot of sympathy in Perth amongst the business community and there's certainly not a lot of sympathy in the media and the general community either. This has crossed a line that should not have been crossed. Yvonne, have you ever participated in protests in, in your lifetime? Uh, uh, yeah. Well, I think, yeah, I have from a very young age and it has been a proud part of my history and my family's history, you know, when I think about all of the protesting that I've participated in, but I think also about, you know, my uncle Porco who protested, um, you know, part of the 10 embassy down in Canberra and he nearly lost his life as a result of people's reaction to the issues that he was raising um, and it shouldn't have happened. Um, people have a right to have a say and challenge uh, views mm. uh, but they shouldn't be doing it in a yeah, unsafe and dangerous manner. Mm. Steve, back to that marketing lens, I mean how should uh, protesters approach their campaigns in 2023? What are some good examples to draw on? I think what you want to be doing is attracting the middle of the market, the undecided people, the, the, the mums and dads with mortgages out in the suburbs, and this is just alienating them. The, the best example probably from the last quarter century is the protest against guns timber in uh, Tasmania. And for years and years they had people climbing on bulldozers, chaining themselves to trees. And what finally got that over the line was protesting against the banks and financiers and shareholders in a civilised manner. And you're not going to win supporters doing this. This is the same group of people who set off a fake bomb in the foyer of Woodside. And all they're doing is preaching to their own base and alienating everyone else. It's dumb marketing. Daniel, how do you think uh, protesters should approach campaigns, particularly when you look at climate change, big emitters, which is what we saw these protesters outside Meg O'Neill's, the CEO of Woodside's place. How do you bring people with you? Because one argument is, is that shareholders are already there, you know, we've seen a groundswell of, of people for uh, taking action against big emitters. Yeah, I definitely think there is uh, a, a big groundswell and a big base for people who uh, who do care about the issues. But I always like to think of uh, protesting and, and what is the effect that you're trying to achieve. It's a very military way of uh, sort of thinking about it. but. The effect you're trying to achieve is to uh, persuade people to your point of view uh, and, and, and threatening uh, individuals' lives in, in their personal property. I don't think you're going to achieve the intended effect as, uh, as Steve alluded to earlier. Mm. Catherine, Indigenous Affairs has been steeped in protests in, in many forms. How do you think modern protesting could learn from that history and the likes of, you know, Charles Perkins, say? Yeah, I was reflecting on that when we were talking about um, what the most successful protests in Australian history were, and I was thinking about uh, the you know the seventies uh, and eighties when our mob were out there marching and certainly sitting beneath the table, right? You know, painting you know stop black deaths in custody. Well, that got a royal commission taking to the streets got a royal commission 
uh, Charles Perkins hit the road on the freedom rides and raised awareness about segregation in Australia. At that point in time, people really weren't aware about things like segregation and they went from town to town to show what the impact was. Um, uh, we've already had the Aboriginal tent embassy mentioned. Then while they're still standing there today, raising awareness about some of the really big issues that impact on our mob. And of course, we're talking about the top end later today, but the top end was also where we had the Wave Hill walk-off, where Stockman said, it is not okay just to give us rations. We deserve to be paid like anybody else. These were massive movements and they're all slightly different. And again, if I nuance it just slightly, even the protests say that my nana was involved in when I was growing up, you know, stopping alcohol, um, being uh, driven out into communities in remote areas. You know, she and her sisters painted themselves up in their women's colours, tops off, and off they went in, in sequence. And they stopped the, the massive provision of alcohol going into remote communities. Mm. They stopped damning of um, Alice Springs because they said, hang on, there's a women's site there and they put on their wall, their, their dancing paint, their women's wall paint and they stood there and they would not let the um, tractors through, the graders through. So there are multiple ways to do it. I think this is a noble fight. Protesting is a noble fight, um, but taking it to people's homes, that is genuinely a step too far. Yeah. How do you reflect then through a protest lens on Gama? I mean, does that break the mould of perhaps what a protest might look like. Oh, it absolutely is. The formation of peak bodies like Snake, they were a form of protest that was about looking at the landscape and saying, how can we take these voices into rooms differently? So absolutely. And the Yolnu, they were very, very clever. They worked out that they needed to have a platform in which they could invite people in on their land, on their terms to say, this is who we are and these are the major issues we want to talk about and we want to talk about them with you so that you take them back into your offices, you take them back into your room and you really listen to what we as Yolnu, the people up in that region, mm. want to, to be talking about. Mm. Danielle, I'm interested to get um, your take on uh, protests in an historical perspective. When you look back to, say, the Vietnam War protests, Korea, Iraq, at the time, many of those were condemned, but do you think history looks back on them more fondly? I think history does look back on uh, protesters uh, fondly uh, and protesters uh, working uh, in, in very arduous conditions to sort of raise awareness to conditions or, or uh, causes that they uh, cared very deeply about. Um, if we look back to uh, the the as we've already discussed the the First Nations uh, protests in Australia that's that's brought about revolutionary change for our people um, and as a proud Gunganji man who's got an, an aerospace business in in 2023 I couldn't do that without the the work of my elders and and all uh, First Nations Australians and, and the Allies actually really pulling together so um, there is absolutely a, a fond lens looking back um, I just hope that. Um, the the protesters uh, who, who are fighting for causes today uh, just, um, I guess, think about the, the effects uh, and, and do so in a measured uh, way. Mm. Stephen, is that how you uh, approach your clients when it comes to, you know, or how you would approach certain people wanting to affect change? How do they effectively, you know, make that? You mentioned before about appealing to that base, but what more needs to be considered? You've got to appeal to the undecided people. Um, there's no point targeting people who are absolutely fixed in their views and you, you really need to take that mass market to undecided people because they're the ones who are available, they're mentally available to change their mind. 
and support you. So I think it's you still need to generate content, you still need to generate arguments and coverage, but doing it in this way is just so, so very wrong and alienates people. Mm. So that's what they're doing wrong. Yeah, so we saw the um, the arrests uh, with the Greenpeace, the five Greenpeace demonstrators uh, at Rishi Sunak's uh, place, Yvonne. Where should the boundaries lie here? Is it the law? Is it uh, social, social norms? Where do you think the boundaries should be when it comes to protesting? Look, I think that the, the whole issue, I mean, like certainly there are key issues. I mean, Greenpeace actually undertake protesting ordinarily, you know, in a peaceful way, um, as, as my people have always done. But there are issues that often continue to get escalated because people are ignoring it. Um, but certainly doing it on a, in a personal space is really quite concerning. And it is very troublesome in terms of people trying to address the key issues. But in terms of the boundaries and where we're at, we need to be able to do it where it is safe, but also is in a positive way. I mean, yes, there are negatives, you know, particularly when we think about the climate and, and the climate change that's happening for all of us. This is going to affect us for forever. And there are urgency around this, but we need to be able to do it that is decent um, and certainly not threatening. What we heard then were uh, values, ethics, ideas, reasons and logic straight from the 20th century. And even then, they were not even inadequate or misplaced. They were simply wrong. And here we are now in the 21st century, dealing with the problems created in the 20th century Yet we're still using the same logic, we're still using the same reason, we're still using the same ethics, and they're wrong. They argue that the protesters have no right to intrude on the private property of others. They should not invade their sovereignty. Well, what the major polluters of the world are doing are invading our private property. Climate change and its impact has no respect for boundaries, or sovereignty, or anything. It goes wherever it likes, and our private property... Our safe place, our homes are being invaded by what's happening, what these polluters are doing. So in response, we have every right to take the fight right up to them because they're bringing it right to us. Agreed, we have a right to be safe in our homes. And of course, we are not safe in our homes. What the polluters are doing with their behaviour, their behaviour, making living in our homes quite risky by the fact that we're being impacted by extreme weather events caused by what the polluters are doing. And so how do we respond to that? We do exactly what we can from where we are. There is no other way. We do what we can from where we are. We can tackle them through the banks. We can tackle them through the financiers. We can tackle them in all sorts of legitimate and official ways. Ways that the, the business world understand. But here we are. We can't do some of those things because the business world is structured in such a way that we cannot even get to it. What we can get to, their homes, their places of work, their activities. That's what we can get to. Where else can we go? And agree, those tactics may not impress lots of people. But as Tim Hollow, the executive director of the Green Institute, says, we are facing the end of the world as we know it. And so that being the case, and I don't disagree with that at all because we are facing the end of the world as we know it, we need some action. We need action from the major polluters. And we're getting none. They're doing nothing. And so how do we make them act? We knock on their door and say, hey, buddy, change your ways. Change your ways. Let's listen now to a little audio from the Columbia Climate School. The webinar was entitled, Paying Attention to Critical Climate Messages 
from the polar regions. And you'll find a link for this webinar in the show notes. Okay, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another Climate Live K-12 session for students, educators, and the public. This is a series that has been run by the Columbia Climate School. My name is Laurel Zaymashihi, and I'll be facilitating the session today. Uh, for those of you who are joining us that are unfamiliar with the Climate School or who are joining us for the first time, the Columbia Climate School is a newly established school at Columbia University for transdisciplinary climate research. The school marshals the university's strengths in basic and applied disciplines and expands its resources to understand climate and its impact on society. Um, the mission of the Climate School is to develop and inspire knowledge-based solutions and educate future leaders for just and prosperous societies on a healthy planet. So this is the first new school at Columbia in over 25 years, so we're extremely excited. And um, this school incorporates more than 20 different centers and over 700 people who collaborate among many different departments at the university to better connect, amplify, and advance new areas of climate inquiry, research, and impact across Columbia and beyond. So what we're hoping to do with these Climate Live K-12 sessions is to introduce you all to the inter interdisciplinary work uh, through our scientific experts. These are monthly sessions um, that run throughout the entire 2022-2023 academic year. Um, so our last session this year is in June. And if you'd like any more information about the sessions, you can visit our website that I'll put in the chat in just a moment um, or contact us via email. Each week we focus on a different topic and um, each different session is directed toward a certain age range. So for today's session, um, it's titled Paying Attention to Critical Climate Messages from the Polar Regions. The polar regions are the site of profound climate change and regularly message us with observable change, yet it's easy to, to dismiss the signals if we're not paying attention. So in this session, we are going to explore some of the range of signals that we are measuring in both the Arctic and the Antarctic, what they mean for the polar regions, and how they connect us um, how they connect to those of us who are beyond the poles. So we are joined by Margie Turin from Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory. Um, and I just wanna remind everyone that we are open to questions. So you can use the Q&A button um, at the bottom of the Zoom webinar function. You can ask questions throughout the presentation and we will set aside time to answer them at the end. All right, Margie, I will hand it over to you. Great, thank you so much, Laurel. I'm going to share my screen and we're gonna just jump right in because I have a lot to share. Um, so first of all, um, again, my name is Margie Turin and um, I'm really excited to be here today to talk to you about the messages that we have been seeing and reading from the polar regions. The polar regions are something that I spend a lot of time working around and I just really always look forward to a chance to share some of this with other people. So today we're going to do um, a variety of different things. We're going to do a quick introduction to the polar regions. We're then going to highlight, I'm just picked eight critical climate messages from the polar regions. There are many, many more, um, but I don't want to take the rest of this to, to talk about some of those because I really want to get us into what's changing, what's uh, available to us and how we can help. So we're just going to move right into this. So first, a little bit of an introduction in terms of the Arctic and Antarctic. They are polar opposites, and that's where their names come from. 
Antarctic mean opposite of Arctic. And they are really dominated by two different kinds of ice. So if you were to look at both of the poles, you would see that they are both white reflective surfaces. And that is one thing that they do have in common. That is where a lot of ice is sitting on our Earth system. And it's because of the way they're situated according to the sun. Um, but they are completely different. So the Arctic is an ocean surrounded by land. And that white reflective surface that you see is actually frozen ocean surface. So that's sea ice. Whereas Antarctica, also white and reflective, is primarily land-based ice in the middle. And there is a fringe of sea ice around the edges. So Arctic land surrounding an ocean, Antarctic ocean surrounding our land. So again, they're very different. Oops, having trouble getting my slide to go forward. There we go. Okay, then I wanna just take a little bit of a different look at this. So we pulled off the floating sea ice or the sea ice in both areas. And now we're looking at just these land ice, these big ice reservoirs that sit in both polar regions. These are elevation maps. And so you can see by looking at them, how much ice is mounded on top of these two land surfaces. These are the two remaining ice sheets on Earth, one in Greenland in the Arctic and one on top of Antarctica in the, the south of the Antarctic region. And if you look at them in comparison to the land uh, topography around, you'll see that Greenland really rivals the elevation of the Himalayan mountains and Antarctica rivals the elevation of the Andes Mountains. So they really are like mountains of ice. And if we were to put on top an elevation measure, you'd see that Antarctica in the very center is about 5,000 meters of ice thick. So that is an extremely thick amount of ice, again, like a mountain. And Greenland is probably closer to 3,000 meters of ice. Um, Okay, so we've talked about differences, we've talked about similarities a little bit, and now we're gonna go into these messages. So the first message I wanna talk about is the loss of Arctic sea ice. So remember, the Arctic is an ocean, and we talked about the fact that that ocean surface is frozen. It's covered in ice, sea ice, and it has been changing in both thickness, so the thickness of the ice and the extent of the ice. So in the Arctic, we have a couple of different types of sea ice. We have this thicker multi-year ice, and then we have thinner seasonal ice. And it's important that we have both kinds. Um, that multi-year ice whole is ice that remains with us all through the summer, whereas the seasonal ice is something that um, is there in the winter, forms in the colder months, and melts away. Um, so if we were just to look at ice thickness, which is what this image is, you'll see that um, there are areas. So here's our, our scaled bar down below, and these are in meters of thickness. You'll see that we have up to five meters of thickness in some areas around the edges of the Arctic, but the center of the Arctic is considerably thinner. This particular image is from February, 2023, so it's current. Um, if we were to travel back in time to the 1980s, you would see a very different picture. So in fact, the thickness of the uh, sea ice has um, halved. So if we were to go back to 1980, uh, the mean thickness was about three and a half meters or about 12 feet. 
that would be the mean, the average. So that means some of it was thicker than that, four to five meters thick. Nowadays, it's 1.89 meters, so less than two meters or about six feet. So we've lost half of that in that period of time, um, which is concerning because thinner ice will melt more readily, whereas that thicker ice is much more persistent. So that's thickness. Let's go to extent. And if we go to extent, we'll see that there's this like seasonal signal. So you see it growing and shrinking, growing and shrinking. But from 1979 down to 2022, you can see there's an, a pretty steady decline. There is one really low year that was 2012. There was a kind of an anomalous situation with winds in the Arctic that kind of forced a lot of sea ice out the Fram Strait. And again, as the climate has been changing, it's a little bit harder to actually, it's actually a lot harder to form that sea ice. So um, we're, we haven't seen it recover and don't expect to see it recover. Let's hear something now from Yale Climate Connections. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. Some developers are building new houses that run only on electricity. No gas lines, period. That means electric water heating, space heating, cooking appliances, clothes drying, etc. Dan Bertoldi is with Central Coast Community Energy, a clean energy provider in California. He says going all-electric is important for the climate. Newer heat pumps and other all-electric technologies are generally more efficient than those that burn gas, and they can be powered by solar or wind energy as more renewables are added to the grid. Because you're using electricity instead of fossil fuels, and that electricity is generated from clean and renewable sources, you're reducing greenhouse gas emissions from your home. So his group provides financial incentives to encourage affordable housing developers to build new, all-electric units. Developers can receive $2,500 per unit, up to $240,000 per project. He says when developers build new, all-electric homes, it's far less likely that those homes will ever run on fossil fuels. When you build a home that's all-electric, this ensures long-term electrification because there is no going back to fossil fuels, essentially. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To hear more stories like this, visit climateconnections.org. Let's turn now to a story by Liam Mannix from the Melbourne Age. The story has the headline, Our permafrost is thawing, and with it bacteria and viruses. The story begins, At the ends of the world, what was long frozen is starting to thaw. When scientists pull drill cords from deep under the surface of the Arctic, they find the ground is warming year on year, a consequence of our efforts to dig up carbon and pump it into the atmosphere. Some chunks of permafrost have been frozen for hundreds of thousands of years. Trapped inside the ice crystals are about as many cells as there are stars in the universe. Some are bacteria, some are viruses. As the permafrost thaws, so do these cells, and scientists are discovering some ancient species can spring to life, and they may begin infecting anew. Even if this is rare, all it takes is one, and there are so many of them, said Corey Bradshaw, a professor of global ecology at Flinders University. This isn't sci-fi, this is real. Here we have some more clear thinking from Amanda McKenzie. 
Hi, Amanda here, CEO of the Climate Council. We're in Parliament House today talking to the press and talking to MPs about the Northern Hemisphere climate disasters, the relentless records that are being smashed for heat, the fires, the bushfire smoke that is very reminiscent of the Black Summer here in Australia. The era of climate consequences is fundamentally all around us and it is driven by the burning of fossil fuels, coal, oil and gas. So we are calling on the government to accelerate their review of the Australia's environmental laws to make sure that they deal with climate change. Can you believe in 2023 that our environmental laws do not deal with greenhouse gases that are driving climate change? So the environmental laws need to be able to work to stop new coal and gas projects, lots of them that are on the books, many who have gone through already during this government's term of parliament. So we're talking to MPs across the, across the board saying these environmental laws need to be upgraded, they need to be strengthened, and they need to be put through really quickly to stop any more coal and gas projects going ahead. Next we have a story from SBS News, and the headline of that story is Do phrases like global boiling help or hinder climate action? The story begins. Last week, United Nations General Secretary Antonio Guterres coined an arresting new term. The era of global warming has ended, he declared, and the era of global boiling has arrived. You can see why he said it. July was the hottest month on record globally. Searing temperatures and intense wildfires have raged across the Northern Hemisphere. Marine heat waves are devastating the world's third largest coral reef off Florida. And as greenhouse gas emissions keep rising, it means even hotter summers await us. Let's listen now as Geraldine Dew from the ABC, that's the Australian Broadcasting Commission, takes us through a story about community batteries. This is coal. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction and all you can talk about is money. There's no other developed country with anything like the wealth of renewable energy resources that Australia has. It's the number one issue facing humanity and it's the number one issue for me. Many of us look at the whole climate change discussion, the global nature of it, and say to ourselves, what can I do? Well, one clear possibility could be to join in a community battery. They can dovetail with our other Australian achievement, the highest uptake of rooftop solar in the world, roughly one in three homes and businesses now have installed systems. And actually there's too much electricity being harvested during the day now and nowhere to put it. So we're still relying on coal to meet evening demand, which brings us back to community batteries. There's increasing support for them from government at all levels. The energy marketing op operator now predicts that low voltage storage, like these batteries, will be essential in the renewable energy transition. Where do we go from here? Alison Reeves joining us to explain. She's at the Grattan Institute with its energy and climate program, and I declare I sit on that board. And Stuart Watson has an interesting story to tell from a personal point of view. Uh, he sits up in northern New South Wales and is very close to securing a battery there. Hello to you both. He's chairperson of Energy Forever, by the way. Hello to you both. Good morning, Geraldine. Uh, Alison, the term community battery, uh, I mean, it's a bit of a catch-all, and I think it's sort of, we hear it in the background. What exactly does it refer to? 
Sure. A, a community battery is a battery that's a bit bigger than a home battery, but smaller than one of the giant grid scale batteries like we see in South Australia, for example. And it's owned or operated for the benefit of a group of people rather than for a single household. Um, within that, though, there's a lot of variation as to what a community battery can be. So, um, they can include households, they can include non-household participants in them. So, for example, schools and uh, supermarkets can host community batteries. They can be um, owned by um, members of the community or they can be leased. Um, I've seen community batteries um, being looked at in retirement villages, for example. They can be attached to solar and wind farms that are also owned by the community. Um, so there's a lot of different variation and a lot of different models. And as yet, people, I think, are still figuring out which ones of those models are going to work and which ones won't. Yes. Um, how do they link in with the solar panels? I mean, yes, what's the, what's the sort of um, the linkage there? Yeah, I mean, all all of the batteries we have on the on the grid are they're becoming increasingly useful because what we're dealing with now is that renewable generators such as wind and solar, they generate when the wind is blowing or the sun is shining, regardless of what the demand for electricity is. So that means there's a mismatch between demand and supply. And the way that you solve that is by storing the electricity. So when it's very sunny in the middle of the day, the solar is making more energy than people need. That energy can go into the battery and it can be used later at a time when there's more demand than the renewables are able to supply. And so from that perspective, what they're doing is helping to keep the grid in balance and they're also making sure that we're not wasting energy when the renewable um, resources are around, whether that's solar in the middle of the day or on particularly windy days for wind farms. So it steadies the grid, you could say. That's right. As quick as moves are being made to help combat the climate crisis, appears those moves are being undone. We have a story from the London Economic, and it's by Jack Pete. The headline for the story is, Sunex family firm signed a billion-dollar deal with BP before PM opened new North Sea licences. The story begins. A firm founded by Rishi Sunex's father-in-law signed a billion-dollar deal with BP two months before the Prime Minister opened hundreds of new licences for oil and gas extraction in the North Sea. In May, the Times of India reported that Infos bagged a huge deal from the global energy company, which is thought to be the second largest in the history of the firm. The Indian IT company is owned by the Prime Minister's wife's family, although Sunak has insisted the matter is of no legitimate public interest. It has since come to light that the IT giant has been involved in the £172 million worth of public sector contract in the UK, and even most innocent bystanders would admit that the current drive to increase oil and gas exploration in the North Sea is more than convenient. What's more, it's made more convenient by the fact that one of Infos' other major clients is Shell, whose CEO joined Rishi Sunak's new business council two weeks ago and promised a candid collaboration with his government. Let's have a listen now to Climate One, and you'll find the link for this in the show notes. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. And I'm Ariana Brocious. Human-caused climate disruption is a collective crisis, and one that compounds the longer we don't address the root causes of it. But for so long, we've thought of it as a future problem, one that the next generation will solve. 
Totally. I've been covering climate for close to two decades, and it's only the fires, floods, and heat of the last few years that have caused climate to be perceived as a problem now, not off in the future. And let's face it, laying our hope for climate solutions at the feet of young people is not only unrealistic, it's completely unfair. Absolutely. From its earliest days, children and youth have been active in the climate movement, pushing older people in positions of power to admit they caused the problem and work to fix it. No one has made this point better than young activist Greta Thunberg, who calls out older generations for failing hers and not owning up to the problem they created while actively worsening the climate crisis through their inaction. Greta's frank and passionate critiques and weekly climate protests made her famous. She was preceded by other youth activists like Slater Jewel Kemker. We need to address, as human beings, our sense of responsibility, and we need to address our selfishness. We need to rethink how we actually live and engage with each other and, and live with this planet, because this is how we've gotten into this, this monumental problem. As we'll hear about on today's show, years of tireless efforts fighting for change frequently leads to unrealistic expectations and even depression and burnout. I look back at it now and there is a part of me that is angry that the narrative encouraged me as a child to believe that I could fix the world's problems. Reporter Maxine Joslow has written on the Washington Post a story that has the headline, Republicans want to plant a trillion trees. Scientists are skeptical. When House Speaker Kevin McCarthy toured a natural gas drilling site in Ohio in June, the California Republican vowed to boost U.S. production of oil and natural gas, major contributors to climate change. God has blessed America with resources, McCarthy said. If we have the ability to produce those resources, America will be stronger and the world will be safer. Smoke from Canadian wildfires hung in the air as McCarthy spoke. Asked about his plans to prevent further fires and disasters fueled by climate change. The Speaker suggested a strategy popular among Republicans. Plant a trillion trees. Yes, we've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. It's been wonderful to have you on board. Now, there's just a couple of things. One, please share this podcast because it's important that you do that because we all need to know all we possibly can about the climate crisis. And two, do you like this podcast? Do you think I should do more? Please tell me. You can contact me via email at number 7 at icloud.com. Now, please don't forget to check out the show notes as you'll find links to all those stories I've mentioned along with a few others right there for you to access. And finally, I want you to take care. I want you to stay safe. And please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Now you take care. Having said all that, I'm going to be away from my home base for a few weeks and so you may not hear me for, hear from me for a while. But I'm going to have a crack at putting together a podcast on my mobile phone. How I'll go, I've got no idea. It may work, it may not. We'll see. Take care.